You know that feeling that comes at the end of a really good getaway? For me, it's usually a mix of happy exhaustion from time away exploring new places and spaces, but also an eagerness to get settled back home, to get back to reality. My name is Kate Graham. I am delighted to be your host and tour guide for Canada 2020's No Second Chances Season 2. If you've been along for the ride, you will know that we are wrapping up a worldwide tour, including visits to every populated continent, to see what's been tried and has worked, to see more women rise to top political roles. We've been from Canada to Denmark, to Taiwan, to Chile, to New Zealand, to the United States of America, and then to Costa Rica and Namibia. Whew. In each country, we have met some inspiring leaders. We have learned about different political cultures and systems. We've chatted with the locals about what specific interventions have yielded greater representation of women at the top. And let's call it what it is. Although each episode has talked about challenges, Overall, we have painted a pretty rosy picture, almost disorientingly so. It's like the picture-perfect vistas that tourists see, sometimes hiding the realities of real life. In this series, we have highlighted inspiring people and experiences, and it might even leave you thinking, wow, look at this progress that we're seeing around the world. And yes, that is true, but we should take a closer look. We are making progress in terms of women's leadership, but we've been pulled in two different ways. Meet Dr. Rosie Campbell. She leads the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. You know, we are gradually seeing more women leaders, women leading countries around the world. It's very gradual. The end is still very, very small. The number of women um, leading countries is still very small. And we also do see a backlash against women leaders in you know, certain parts of the world and a sort of rise of strongman politics in some places, which is associated with the populist politics. So I don't think there's anything inevitable about continued progress. But I do think there are some positive trends and we have to keep resisting the backlash. According to the Interparliamentary Union, the percentage of female elected heads of state sits just around 7%. Yes, that's right. 7%. And it's actually dropped slightly in recent years. And that number is based on the total number of leaders and the percentage that are women. If we were to base it on the percentage of the world's population who live in places led by women, well, it becomes a much smaller number, mostly because some very large nations like China, Russia, Japan, the USA, and Mexico have never in their modern history been led by a woman. But as Dr. Campbell says, we are seeing gradual increases over time of more women in politics and in leadership. So sitting around 7% today, should we call that progress? I think of an average of anything less than 50% over a period of time isn't enough. And I think that justice argument is enough on its own, you know, in terms of why we should have 50% women in leadership positions, because Women are more than half the adult population in most developed countries. Um, you know, unfortunately, women tend to live a bit longer than men, although that is slightly changing over time. Um, so more women in the adult population. Um, we know that there's nothing intrinsic about women that makes us less good leaders. Um, the fact that women are not there is because of historical barriers to women's representation. And it's simply not... Um, not good enough to just say, well, it will get there eventually because the blockages are so significant. 
and it's taking so long that what, there's no reason to be patient. Justice alone is enough to warrant serious intervention. And if you look around the world, countries that have employed quotas to get more women into leadership positions have succeeded in doing so. And I think as well as that argument from justice, there are plenty of arguments from the quality of our political representation. The kind of issues that become politically salient when there are more women in politics change. Um, we know from research around the world, when we have more women in leadership, issues such as welfare, education, health, childcare, domestic violence rise up the political agenda. Um, so we need more women in leadership positions to represent the things that we care about. Right. So if anyone was ready to break out the champagne and celebrate the advancements of women in top political leadership, well, not so fast. And it's not just the numbers. Sure, we can count up the women and see very easily, with around 7% of world leaders being women today, that we're still very far from parity. But perhaps the real problem lies a bit deeper. Um, I um, used to do a review of the Fabian Women Network's political education scheme, which is a sort of scheme for women who are on the left of politics in the UK. Um, and when I started doing that, Get exactly how long ago, perhaps 10, 11, 12 years ago, um, the issue that the women used to raise in those evaluations was how the group had fostered increases in their confidence and willingness to participate. Um, I did um, a review the year that Jo Cox was murdered, and she was very well known to a lot of women in that scheme and at the organisers. And actually, what they raised was the sense of safety and, and camaraderie and, and support that the group provided it was a completely different narrative to the one that I was familiar with. And I think that has got a lot worse. And some of that is to do with the polarisation of politics in the UK, that we went through a period of politics being the two main parties being very close together in the political centre, and that pushed apart. Then obviously the Brexit referendum um, is a huge part of that polarisation. But it's also about the changing nature of discourse and 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 the you know we all know it's about the nature of social media and, and how that seems to foster and facilitate extremism um so i'm afraid i think some of those barriers are fairly if not newly erected um are are becoming more powerful or more or more more significant in um inhibiting women's participation which i find incredibly alarming let's unpack that for a second Dr. Campbell points to a common narrative that we used to hear about why we don't see more women in politics. It's the confidence gap, or sometimes called imposter syndrome. The idea that if more women just believed in themselves or saw more women in leadership roles, the whole see her to be her thing, then perhaps that would be the key to finally unlocking the full participation of women in politics. And I'm sure there is some truth to that, and we have seen some progress there. But what Dr. Campbell here is arguing is something quite different. What she's saying is that the problem is not with women, but instead that in an age where politics is becoming more and more polarized and toxic and threatening and extreme, well, it is pushing women out. I think if you look around the world right now, Jair Bolsonaro, um, Donald Trump no longer in office, um, Vladimir Putin. We've had examples of really hyper-masculine leadership styles where the, the leader is supposed to be the strong man who can fix everything. And, and um, that's the cult of the leader where it's very difficult to speak, speak truth to power, where there's a rejection of expertise, where there's sometimes a pretense of physical invulnerability to the disease itself. 
Um, and all of these kind of approaches to leadership are highly problematic. I think we've got some real toxic leadership around the world and a healthy dose of a more hyper-feminine leadership style is what we need. Toxic, hyper-masculine leadership. Whew. You know, it's easy to pick out the Trump and Putin and the obvious examples of these kinds of leaders. But perhaps the bigger question is not about individual leaders, but leadership. We live in an era where politics feels so divisive and polarized. So we have to ask, what kind of leaders do today's politics attract? And what kind of leadership do we reward? We know that patriarchy exists um, pretty much everywhere in the world, right? But the extent to which it's practiced is still different, right? There's still some variation about that. Dr. Sarah Liu has a dual PhD in political science and in women, gender, and sexuality studies. She teaches at the University of Edinburgh, and she's the editor of Representation, the Journal of Representative Democracy. So if you are in an environment where you are not likely to be exposed to um, women legislators, if you don't know that it's a norm, right, that women could be um, representatives and it could be a norm that women, you know, play these um what do you call it, like this like traditionally um, traditionally men's game, right? Then if you're in that environment, then you would think that, oh, well, women are not suitable for, for leaders, so you are like less likely to support leaders, right, who are women, right? So there are all these, like, cultural constraints as well that prevent women from um, um, running politi- for political seats or even winning political seats. Dr. Liu calls politics what it is, a man's game right? We've grown to accept this traditional frame of how politics works, how people engage with each other, that being nasty and confrontational and aggressive, it's just how the game is played. But this rewards specific kinds of leaders, usually men. Political institutions remain to be heavily masculine and um, heavily dominated by men. Research has shown that women are um, less politically ambitious than men, right? Um, it's not because women are born into, you know, having less political ambition. It's really just that women are socialized into thinking that, you know, a political um, office is not suitable for them. They're not meant to be leaders. Um, they shouldn't consider pol- political um, uh, public affairs as a um, as a career option, right? So women are just socialized into thinking that they're not qualified. They're not leadership material, so they shouldn't pursue office. Therefore, their political ambition um, is um, less than, than their male counterparts, right? So if we really want to see more women rise up to the um, leadership roles, then we need to create a woman-friendly environment. Women-friendly politics. Hmm. What would that even look like? What would it mean to build a kind of political culture that makes more women want to be a part of it? or where we, as voters, value different kinds of leadership, sometimes quieter, kinder, more thoughtful, more collaborative, more empathetic. What if that was what we expected or even demanded of our leaders? If you've been following the No Second Chances Project, well, you know that that doesn't exactly characterize the treatment of women at the top in Canada. In our first season, We examined the experiences of the just 13, now 14, women who have reached the peaks of Canadian politics, of more than 300 people who've assumed those roles. And the findings were kind of grim. Women tend to last only half as long as men. 
they rise in difficult circumstances, and when they run for re-election, they lose. Two years later, in a country that re-elects incumbents all the time, and we've still never re-elected a female first minister to lead through a second mandate, aka no second chances. And we concluded in that series that the problem certainly wasn't these women who crossed all party lines and frankly are remarkably capable people. The problem, perhaps, is with us. It's with how we evaluate and treat our leaders. It's a culture problem and one that exists around the world and unfortunately in Canada. But we will return to Canada for our final episode in a couple of weeks. Before we do, let's talk a little bit about what we have learned this season by looking at countries that have accomplished something that we have not. More women and more diversity of women and more success for women leaders at the top. Women remain underrepresented even in 2022. So only about 12 women are um, president or prime minister in the, in the sole or chief executive role across the globe. Women only hold still about 25 to 30 percent of legislative seats, depending on the global region. So it's massive underrepresentation relative to men. You may recognize the voice of Dr. Jennifer Piscopo there, a political scientist featured in our episode on Costa Rica. And the reason is that, you know, because political office is male dominated, that those ideas of men being better suited for political roles and political roles being stylized for men are deeply rooted and they persist. So even if citizens and voters, you know, and, and survey questions broadly support women in politics, the fact of the matter is political parties, the way of doing business in politics, the assumptions that parties and voters have, even when not explicit about who makes a good political leader, um, continue to be shaped um, with a male ideal. And it is taking decades to really erode uh, some of these assumptions about who makes a good political leader. There is a word for this, bias. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we hold a bias in how we evaluate and examine female leaders. It's deep, it's systemic, and it's a big part of why we don't see more women rise to the top, including in Canada. Here, Dr. Piscopo shares a perfect example. So thinking about these outsized expectations, you know, one thing that's important to recognize is Chinchilla's presidency wasn't necessarily seen as a success in Costa Rica. Um, she left office in 2014 with really low approval ratings. But if you look at some of the reasons that were attributed to her alleged lack of success, right, it was that, well, the economy didn't grow enough and there was rising crime and insecurity. But actually, and, and I have to acknowledge the work of my colleague Gwen Thomas here, you know, Thomas points out the economy in Costa Rica grew under Chinchilla the same exact amount as it had under her male predecessors. But there was this narrative that the economy wasn't successful when she was president. Um, rising insecurity was a concern in Costa Rica long before Chinchilla became president. So going back to this idea of these outsized expectations, I think it's also important to realize that there are double standards, right? She was judged more harshly for, say, not having an, an economic success, but it's actually not clear that she was any worse at managing the economy than the men. And in fact, Costa Rica's growth was still modest in this period. So these narratives, you know, still used a lot of gender stereotypes. Um, and I think one lesson we have to take away from that is we have to sort of be attentive all along to what we're demanding from our leaders and whether our expectations and our way of viewing their successes and failures are colored by their gender. 
right? Um, and we see this in the case of other women presidents, you know, that the things that they get criticized for or the things that turn out to be crises of their lead are things that happen to their male predecessors, but were never elevated, right, to the scale of a crisis or the scale of, you know, bottom level approval ratings. So I think one um, unfortunate lesson from the Costa Rican case is that even when these barriers are broken, uh, the gender double stereotypes, the gender double standards continue, the gender stereotypes continue. And there was a very prominent um, Afro woman politician. Her name is Epsi Campbell Barr. She later did become vice president um, who really wanted to seek her party's nomination for the presidency in 2014. This would have been to run in the election right after Chinchilla. And I think there was some sense that the parties were suddenly gun shy about putting forward a woman candidate because of this narrative that Chinchilla's presidency hadn't been successful. So um, that's sort of a, a sad note, but I think we can take an important lesson away here, which is that gender really still does matter. It shapes not just how women enter office, but it also shapes how they leave. And if we want more equity, then we have to hold ourselves accountable for how we're judging politicians and how we're making space for them. If there was a punchline from No Second Chances season one, well, this would be it. If we want equality in politics, we have to hold ourselves accountable for the different ways we evaluate female politicians, and even more so for female politicians who are a part of another equity-deserving group. A lesson from this season is that this holds true not just in Canada, but around the world. The most common intervention we heard about this season was gender quotas, because frankly, they work. Sometimes these quotas have been built right into constitutions, like in Namibia and Chile. Sometimes quotas have come from inside political parties, like in Denmark. But where they exist, they work. Here's Namibia's Prime Minister, Sarah Kungonguela Amadila, on why quotas matter. We should be prepared to embrace the quota system in the political parties to say that every political party should have gender equity in their list of representation and that we should have a quota system in, in ministries of, of government, in the public sector, in civil society, because women cannot be spoken for. People cannot speak on behalf of women because in as much as they may interact with women, they can never really be able to articulate what women want and what women feel, what women go through. Empowering women is not disempowering men. You know, when women ascend to position of power, we are not crowding out men. But when all of us can be the best that we can be, when all of us are supported to be the best that we can be, the world will be a better place. We will achieve greater prosperity for all of us. So it is in our common interest as a global community to make sure that men and women are given the equal opportunity and the support that they need to be the best that they can be. We also know that there's real opposition to even the idea of quotas in places like the United States. Here's Dr. Nadia Brown, a scholar you may remember from our American episode. But I think about the research from my, my colleagues in comparative politics, particularly those that study women in state legislatures or um, national legislatures in South America and in, in Europe or in places in Africa where there are gender quotas. Um, now, we know that they're problematic, right? And so there's backlash um, with quotas and that um, 
sometimes these women are figureheads only and they don't actually have real um, real authority to make change. But within these systems, I think it changes who people believe could be rightful leaders. And sometimes symbolic representation is an important stepping stone to get us to descriptive representation. And so thinking about countries that are willing to put themselves or to hold up this progressive manner, maybe it is learning from places that have quotas and, and seeing what, um, and, and working to instill some of these quotas, but um, taking the scholarship to learn how to actually implement them in ways that take women out of figurehead positions. Um, women, minorities, indigenous groups, right, queer folks, differently abled folks out of these figurehead positions and actually incorporating their voices and perspectives in politics. So, I mean, I'm hard, I'm heartful that um, Canada might be able to do this. I, I, unfortunately, I think the ship has sailed for the U.S. I suppose time will tell. But it wasn't just quotas that we heard about this season. We also heard about other specific interventions, like electoral reform, and specifically proportional representation in Denmark and New Zealand, or major efforts to address economic and social gender gaps in Taiwan and Namibia. In the United States, progress has come through campaign finance, where interventions by civil society actors in things like EMILY's List have changed the game for female candidates. So it's not like we don't know what can be done if we want to see parity in politics. No, it's pretty well documented. And we've heard firsthand this season about what exactly these interventions can look like. So, Canada. I guess the question is, what are we prepared to do? And then again, I think with some of these vitriolic attacks, we need to be organized and supporting each other so that if, if someone is being attacked by online trolls and so on, that we have a way of banding around each other and supporting each other. So I think there's a lot we can be doing. And I think one of the most important things is not to be silenced. And I think that it's very easy for opponents to say, oh, we, we're, we virtually have gender equality now. Don't make such a noise. There are lots of other issues that are more important. And one of the most important things we can do is just refuse to be silenced. Dr. Campbell is right. Until we see parity in politics, until we see a diversity of women rising to our leadership roles and getting the same chances that we see for men, we cannot be silenced. We have to keep talking about this. That is why we have produced this season. That is why we are looking around the world for inspiration. It's important. That's why we need to keep pushing for better. So even as our trip around the world is concluding, we have one more important episode to go. Next time, in our episode called Canadian Arrivals, we are going to take a good, hard look in the mirror and ask what we, as Canadians, are prepared to do to finally, finally, finally address inequality in our politics. Join me. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara, under the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Ganey. The music is by Meredith Yayanos. More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca. The No Second Chances Project has been made possible by the very generous support of Margaret McCain and MasterCard. <laughs>